You are listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno, and I want to welcome you to the Macro Trading Floor. This is the most actionable macro trading floor out there in the entire world. At least we hope so. This is Alf speaking. Uh, welcome to the Macro Trading Floor for another episode this week. I'm tired to say that, but what a week all over again, Andreas. We are recording on the 28th of September, straight away after the Bank of England announced QE, not QE, another of these very interesting um, setup where they literally announce they're going to support the long end of the gilt market, which is the domestic UK bond market. And uh, this comes only days after Andreas, when, we, when the market was trying to force the Bank of England to hike 200 plus basis point and to bring terminal rates to 5 or 6%, basically demanding positive real rates. Otherwise, they wouldn't fund the external deficit that the UK is running with the problem of terms of trade, etc. And the Bank of England so far didn't raise by 200 basis point. The first thing they did was to buy long-end bonds. Here is the response from Andrew Bailey to that attempt. <laughs> he, he, he simply couldn't care less. Oh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously joking, but um, what they did today um, is sort of an attempt to control a market uh, being in absolutely bananas mode, uh, to just put it literally right. Uh, we've seen a move in the real interest rate uh, in the UK uh, in sort of the belly and, and the far end of the curve of probably 450 basis points in a matter of quarters, right? Um, maybe even in a matter of months. And I mean, stuff like that um, is just too much to swallow uh, for a lot of interesting um, players in the market, not least um, institutions with a big exposure towards interest rates in the far end of the curve. And here I name the think about pension funds. Um, we know that pension funds are sort of naturally on the receiving end of swap deals um, since they want to match the asset with the liability side, the liability side being these long-term liabilities to the pension fund members. Uh, and um, I mean, obviously, it's been the right thing to do over the past couple of years to just match your uh, asset and liabilities via receiving um, foreign swaps, uh, via selling uh, long-end volatility, try and write the carry. Um, and I mean, oh boy, when when such a move happens, uh, it, it goes wrong very fast, right? Uh, and I think that is essentially the reason why the Bank of England ultimately had to step in. Yeah. Actually, it was the chapter this morning talking to various friends in the industry that that was the reason. Uh, but then actually there were articles confirming it straight away um, that effectively a couple of more than a couple of UK pension funds were uh, not able to meet margin calls, Andreas. And as you described, those margin calls are effectively the result of leveraged uh, duration trades uh, of any sort, uh, but also simply receiving swaps to match liabilities, mm -hmm. uh, but also a lot of leveraged trades, which to be honest, have been very popular during the low interest rate environment, carry harvesting environment of 2014 to 2020, basically. And now we are seeing the results of that. So what happens is that when you have a move like the one you described, I think something like 10 year gilts moved by 100 basis point in five trading sessions. I mean, any model that you try to have based on history does not entail such a move, which means you are not prepared to meet uh, to meet margin calls. At the same time, other 
assets that you have are also not performing. Equities, credit spreads, and everything else that pension funds have are not increasing in mark to market. They are going down, actually, which doesn't help. What I want to emphasize in this week's podcast is that we're talking about the UK now. These are sort of the ramifications of the actions taken by the new administration in the UK. So Liz Truss and her finance minister um, sort of trying to bail out right about everyone from the energy bill. Uh, I have anecdotal evidence of people, very wealthy people now paying a smaller energy bill compared to a year ago. That's absolutely crazy. Uh, yeah. But that's uh, essentially the end game of this uh, new bailout package. Uh, by the end of the day, what I fear right now, living in the European continent, is that this is a warning signal of what will happen in right about every European country in a couple of months from now. Um, so, I mean, that could be the next step here uh, to sort of start to expect similar action in European bond markets. Maybe Italy is a good place to expect that. You uh, are uh, making me have goosebumps for my uh, Italian fellow citizens, Andreas, but the, uh, your point is correct when it comes to looking at the risks and the balance of risks here. Let's assume Italy comes up now with a, you know, uh, some fiscal largesse of some sort, right? So if the new elected government wants to please um, the electorate, my calculation implementing even half of their measures will be in the 30 to 40 billion uh, fiscal deficit injection. It's not massive. It's around 2-2.5% of, uh, of Italy GDP. But at this juncture, Andreas, anything would be punished by markets. Like any hint of fiscal largesse will be punished by markets. And as you already highlighted in a couple of, of episodes ago, there are basically two release valves, the bond market and the foreign exchange market, right? Now, interestingly, the sterling had seen basically both release, valve, release valves being topped by markets. And the, um, for Italy or for Europe, it would be an interesting setup because the bond market is a clear target. I mean, it's, it's a very fragmented, very diverse market where, where Italian government bonds can be a target. Uh, the euro can also be a target. The central bank is caught in the middle, the European Central Bank. It would really be a mess. Yeah, absolutely. And um, interestingly, uh, the question is now whether the European Central Bank will be able to withstand such messages from, let's say, the Italian administration. But I also fear similar messages from other administrations around Europe um, without having to intervene in the bond market ultimately. Um, I think, I mean, we, we can see that from, um, from today's action in, in, uh, in the UK. When shit hits the fan, no matter whether inflation is running 10 percentage points above target, you have to step in to calm down markets uh, because the alternative is worse, right? Uh, so even if this is not textbook QE, it's certainly not since the purchases are sterilized. Um, so it essentially means that the they're trying to sort of sterilize the uh, increase in the asset side uh, via other liquidity measures. Uh, but ultimately, even though this is a sterilized um, action by the Bank of England, it will be probably seen as a light QE by markets. Yeah. Um, and it will likely also lead to an even larger ultimate release valve via the sterling exchange rate, right? At least I fear that. I mean, I wouldn't rule out that we go below parity in the sterling versus the dollar, stuff like that, um, as a consequence of this, at least until the Federal Reserve sort of <laughs> steps on the brake a little bit on, on in terms of their policies right now. Yeah. Right? 
It's, you're perfectly right. As we talked about, there are two release valves and the Bank of England here decided to basically stop the one they can immediately stop. Uh, the Bank of England and, in general, UK policymakers own only about 100 billion of net foreign exchange reserves. So if I look at their gross net um, uh, reserves, sorry, gross reserves uh, against their um, uh, draining factors from the re reserves, so the liabilities they have in repos or on FX forwards, the net result is roughly 100 billion, which is 3% of UK GDP. It's two to three months of imports, Andreas. That's not a lot of ammunition. And obviously the Fed could provide swap lines, but the Fed's interest right now is to take care of domestic inflation. So incentive schemes are not very aligned when it comes to this. And the Bank of England can easily stop one release valve, which is the bond market. As we have seen, they can literally decide basically where is the clearing level of 30-year bond deals. It's today 100 basis point lower in a single day. But they, if they tap that release valve, the pressure will should at least immediately move or translate into the sterling. So it's it, there is there is when there is an exogenous shock, there is no easy monetary or fiscal tool to actually fix it. That's the problem. No, and I mean ultimately, let's translate this mayhem into risk assets. Uh, I think it's it's hard to find anything positive to say right now. Um, because even if this is sort of a yield controlling measure, uh, it's it's almost a panic yield control, if you ask me, right? So it's it's it should be seen as a positive uh, in terms of the discount factor, because the sort of backdrop to why it was implemented is 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 so bad. Um, so I guess, of course, down the road, if they if they keep interest rates at zero, let's just say that they won't. But let's just say that it's that it's ultimately a supporting factor for discount rates. Um, but in this kind of environment, uh, the net net of such an environment is is certainly still negative for for risk assets. But one thing that strikes me, Alfonso, yeah. uh, and that leads us to uh, the digital asset summit in in London uh, in in the middle of October, is that the Bitcoin is relatively stable yeah. in in this environment. When we see mayhem in FX, we see mayhem in in various front-end bond markets even in the far end of bond markets uh, in certain countries uh, and mayhem in many risk assets uh, in equity space but bitcoin is doing all right i mean at least from a risk adjusted perspective yeah from a risk adjusted pers perspective is holding up incredibly well it might be due under to the fact that the institutional adoption has been relatively contained if you ask me so bitcoin isn't sitting on most institutions balance sheet whatever the narrative was in 2021 the adoption from institutions is still relatively contained which also makes this asset a weirdly enough a uh, least targeted uh, liquidation asset for meeting margin calls especially margin calls coming from institutional investors they own bonds they own credits they own equities they don't own bitcoin um, no, basically no pension fund does or almost very little so that could explain some of this action but it's really striking from a beta or risk adjusted basis to see indeed G digital assets holding very well now if you guys in general are interested in the crossroads between macro and digital assets then digital asset summit conference of organized by blockworks in october 17 18 in london is actually uh, one of the places to be you'll have family offices crypto funds traditional macro funds involved in the crypto space um, all be there you'll have speakers um, you'll have uh, a bunch of guys to meet and, and listen to good content including myself perhaps even andreas being there on october 17 18 at the lancaster hotel in london 
and uh, we will uh, make sure to add the link to um, the landing page for, for BlockWorks and the event um, in our description, and you can use the code MACRO to get 20% off the ticket to the conference. So that was the code MACRO. But um, Alfonso, should we, uh, should we move on and uh, get to the actionable part of the podcast, the one where we invite the guest indoors to the macro training floor. Let's do that. So welcome back to the macro trading floor, guys. And um, my pleasure to introduce the guest of the week. It's a specialist on FX. Um, where is he, Andres? Oh, it's you. Mr. Steno, guest of the week. Yeah. I mean, we uh, we decided that we needed a week again with um, the two of us as, as the guests. Um, so let's get an update on how we are trading this market. Um, not easy. Uh, I've had some terrible positions in my portfolio <laughs> the past quarter, but also, and we need to remember that, quite a few decent ones because the portfolio construction has been okay. Um, so I've actually had some some decent windshields in my portfolio against this scenario, um, which is what you need when shit hits the fan. Pretty much. You hit, you get hit on some, you win on some. That's how it works for everybody. Even Soros said at the end of the day, it's about how much you win on your winners and how little you lose on your losers and not about winning the whole time. But okay, um, Andreas, let me ask uh, one basic question, which is, do you see Actually, please paint me a bull case for risk assets. The floor is yours. <laughs> uh, well, I can do that in 20 seconds because uh, it's very hard to. Uh, I, I mean, okay, let me, let me try and, and find the arguments that are sort of for the bull case. Um, first of all, if you look at positioning, whether you ask institutions, whether you ask retail investors, or whether you look at futures positioning uh, from the um, Chicago Merchandise um, Exchange, they all look very similar. The worst ever sentiment in the history of either the time series of futures or in the time series of these investor positioning surveys. You cannot find any whatsoever upbeat signals in any whatsoever survey right now. Is that sufficient to buy risk assets? Obviously not. Um, I remember the last time we had sort of a similar sentiment. Uh, it was probably just after Lehman in September 2008. Uh, and yeah. I don't recall the exact numbers uh, by heart, but I mean, equities dropped like a stone in the period after that negative sentiment yeah. survey. Uh, so obviously it's not enough to have negative sentiment. Um because, I mean, it's only a contrarian signal if we start to get a rebound in some of the underlying fundamentals, right? Um, the other optimism argument is that Bank of England's move towards yield curve control is the first move towards central banks globally throwing in the towel towards the battle on inflation. I mean, I have some sympathy for that view. Um, you could also argue that Bank of Japan and People's Bank of China has sort of joined that camp to a certain extent via yeah. F direct FX interventions versus a strong dollar. I mean, that's kind of a way of adding liquidity to the market as well. Um, so there are now three central banks 
on top of Erdogan's uh, central bank in Turkey trying to fight inflation the other way around, essentially, right? Via adding liquidity um, or via sort of containing um, the downside pressures in, in fixed income space. Uh, and I mean, if we get Federal Reserve to join that band, let's put it like that, then it's a game changer. Um, but I mean, for now, as long as we have sort of no mayhem directly in the treasury market, uh, we still have a, a decently functioning uh, liquidity in, in uh, both the short end and the long end of, of the treasury curve, then I think um, you could just as well postpone that story a couple of months still. Uh, but I guess ultimately that is the hope that you need to sort of look for uh, when it comes to global central banks and the pot potential pivot, because the Federal Reserve will not pivot due to inflation. The only feasible pivot scenario now is a complete meltdown of the U.S. Treasury market, um, which essentially means that you need to position for a meltdown before the pivot happens. Uh, so that's, by the end of the day, not a super good bull case either. Um, finally, it may be a decent bull case if we get a substantial decline in inflation. Um, I think that's maybe the most compelling argument I've seen. If we look at historical patterns, um, let's take the 70s as sort of a similar period to today. Uh, I don't buy the comparison completely. Uh, but yeah. if we look at the 70s as a period with high inflation um, measured by the CPI, we actually had a decent pattern uh, in a couple of cycles during the 70s. With inflation peaking, we actually saw a decent bounce in risk assets exactly when the peak was in. Uh, and I think that was exactly what we saw in U.S. equities in particular after a couple of decent inflation prints um, in, in, um, in July and, and um, into August. And then we obviously got the last report uh, sort of reversing some of that trend leading to a um, renewed uh, sell-off in, in equities in the U.S. before we got this global mayhem in, uh, in fixed income space. So if, if you trust that inflation has peaked in the U.S., then I actually think that you can make a decent bull case in U.S. equities, um, which is why I've designed my portfolio to have a very small sort of beta position in U.S. equities relative to European equities held in local currency so that I get the um, gains from the U.S. dollar versus the euro seen from, from Danish soil. So, Andreas, you did an excellent job in articulating an answer which probably you thought in your head when I asked you the question, man, I have no bull case, what are you talking about? But great job at articulating why that could be the case. In the end, uh, money is generally made on betting on something that is really underpriced in terms of probability going forward. And right now a bull case seems the farthest thing away that could be out there. So it's interesting, I think, to debate what could, uh, what could spur a rally exactly at the moment where you know, rates are selling off. Anything that smells of an asset is basically selling off unless it's, it's yeah. denominated in dollar. And it's just the dollar itself. Let, let's just give a virtual high five to Bob Elliott, uh, our guest from last week. He suggested to go short the RPAR ETF, um, so basically a broad basket of assets. He said short right about everything um, due to... Yeah, basically a correlation meltdown, a mayhem in the front end interest rates, blah, blah, blah. And he was absolutely rock on, spot on everything. High five to you, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Bob, if you're listening, 
And if you're not listening, I'll get pissed. But if you're listening, high <laughs> five. Anyway, um, so back to us, Andres. I know that you divide central banks right now around the world in a couple of camps. Right now, you already started articulating that theory. Uh, walk us through which camps are they? What options do central banks have around the world? Well, I... I am born and raised in foreign exchange markets professionally, at least. Um, and I, I tend to see foreign exchange as mostly sort of just a relative central bank game. Um, that's at least the clearly most important driver of, of, of foreign exchange markets. And right now, I think we have three, potentially four camps of central banks. First of all, central banks being willing to sacrifice the foreign exchange uh, rate in return for a stabilization of the local bond market. Bank of Japan has been in that camp for as far as I've been an adult. <laughs> but uh, and, I mean, this year it's been very clear, right? Um, Bank of England just joined that camp. People's Bank of China to a certain extent joined that camp also uh, over the past couple of weeks. So we have China, Japan and England in that camp. They are yeah. willing to sacrifice the foreign exchange rate at the consequence, uh, that's the consequence of supporting the local bond market. Then we have the European Central Bank, uh, which is an example of a central bank currently sacrificing both the FX exchange rate and the local bond market. Um, as per usual, the European Central Bank is as paralyzed as it can be. Um, it's, it's very typical for them to react to situations rather than to try and proactively meet uh, some of yeah. the demands by markets. Um, I mean, if I were them, I would um, already be shitting my pants, to be honest, um, because if just one or two of the administrations within the Eurozone try to copy-paste the uh, strategy of list trust in the UK, they will be faced with the exact same issue because you have a balance of payment issue already in the Eurozone due to high energy costs from abroad, um, and you have fiscal deficits upcoming in right about every member country. So you have that double deficit, said in popular words, uh, that will allow the bond market um, to sell off completely if uh, these fiscal deficits worsen from here. Uh, so... I expect the European Central Bank to join the camp of trying to support the local bond market uh, by allowing the FX exchange rate to, to, to worsen even further. Uh, so therefore, I can just as well admit to it, I said just to, to make a bit of fun out of the situation that I would launch an only fan page should we reach 0.95 in the euro dollar. Um, and let me put it like this. I have uh, slowly but surely found my man Kinney in the cellar. So, <laughs> um, I, I can rest, you can rest assured, um, I will price my OnlyFans page in US dollars. Let me put it like that. <laughs> uh, but the, fi the, the, the final camp of central banks uh, is, is the camp of central banks willing to actually defend the local currency exchange rate by allowing the bond market to reflect the inflation reality. Uh, I think the Federal Reserve is a decent Western example of that. They moved ahead of other central banks in allowing the sort of local bond market to reflect the inflation reality. So they allowed the bond market to sell off. Um, you have a couple of great examples in LATAM, uh, both Brazil and Mexico. Uh, so, I mean, they've been very early and very vocal in their fight against inflation, uh, probably as they are more used to combating inflation. That I, I, I mean, I think it's as simple as that. They've seen the issue before. They, they move swiftly when they see it, uh, while... Most yeah. of the members of the European Central Bank, including if I were on the um, board, they move too slow because they 
it was sort of the first time they really had to combat such a situation, right? Um, yeah. So therefore, I, I, I still hold the view that from an FX perspective, you need to position yourself in the camp of central banks trying to, to um, sort of contain the pressures in the local FX market by allowing the bond market to sell off. Um, the Federal Reserve, the uh, Mexican Central Bank, and the um, uh, Reserve Bank of Brazil, those are sort of the three best cases I can find globally of, of, uh, of such yeah. a, um, a central bank policy mix. Which, if I try and connect all the dots, Andreas, I'm looking at central banks that are in trouble, central banks that are a bit less in trouble, but it comes as a function of how crazy is the government when it comes to fiscal response. Um, so that's, you know, it's basically a an array of uh, UK on one end and then maybe some European countries all the way to other countries that are completely fiscally responsible uh, at this point. So they want to basically not shield the private sector as much. And then I see a balance of payment problem as well. That's another axis. So in terms of trade and current accounts, etc. So Brazil, Mexico, they actually export uh, commodities. Brazil, a good example of that. So they'll be less hit than a European country or a UK country. Then I'm looking as well at the ability to defend their currency uh, and the credibility of the central bank at the end of the day, right? So you, you put them all on these different axes and variables and you can come up with an idea of how do you want to position in FX, with, which would be my question, because I expect now a trade in the FX space. Outside of a small attempt to go long euro dollar, uh, I think it was in, was it early September? doesn't matter. Um, I've been long US dollar all year. Uh, I can prove that. Um, which is the only reason why I'm sitting here with a portfolio that is not blown into spithereens. Um, if, if I had been on US soil, I would have had a massive negative return this year. But since I'm on European soil and I've positioned myself in, self in both dollar cash, but also various dollar assets, um, I've done an okay job of shielding myself. Um, and I essentially expect more pain before we get the gain. Um, so long US dollar is still a position of mine. Uh, but I am adding a bit of Latin American exposure because Latin America is decently shielded from this terms of trade crisis that we see across the European continent. Um, they have various commodities themselves, uh, which is a good thing in the current environment. They have access to decently cheap energy in a relative context, uh, since they have access to uh, energy both locally, but also from the Northern American continent. Um, and they have central banks willing to sacrifice the local bond market to ensure that the FX uh, exchange rate stabilizes relative to the US dollar from an inflation perspective, because that's sort of the most important trade partner of theirs. Uh, so they will have to look at the exchange rate versus the dollar. So if we have a strong dollar, they will look at that. Um, and therefore, from a European perspective, it may make a lot of sense to belong Brazil and Mexican peso versus the euro. Uh, you get a bigger nominal carry um, and you get a central bank sort of safeguarding the exchange rate relative to the US dollar, not versus the euro. Yeah, and you get a much better terms of trade, yeah. obviously. Clearly, the trade, Andreas, which is the question we ask all the guests, uh, when does the trade go wrong? I actually think that the biggest issue here is a food crisis. Um, we've heard quite a few people warn about a famine globally. Uh, usually, that could uh, be 
something that spills over to like a broad emerging market crisis. Uh, but I mean, even in the scenario where the Federal Reserve sort of starts uh, pivoting, uh, I don't expect it, then I, I think we will have a decent performance in the Brazil and Mexico leg, um, pr probably also decent performance in the Euro leg of the trade. But I mean, plus minus uh, with the carry, I still expect the trade to do well. So the biggest issue here would be if the Federal Reserve very aggressively hiked interest rates relative to the Mexican Central Bank and the Brazilian Central Bank, and the ECB played catch up to the Federal Reserve. Uh, so also the European Central Bank sort of aggressively tightened policy relative to what we see in, um, in, in Mexico and Brazil, because ultimately real yields are what matter um, to, to, um, to the relative development in FX. So if the European Central Bank were to become extremely aggressive from a real interest rate perspective relative to Mexico and Brazil, then I would be wrong as beep. <laughs> <laughs> we will not translate no. the beep. Well, Andreas, I think the download of the trade has been very clear. The macro ideas behind as well. Thanks for being a guest on the macro trading floor. Where can people find you, <laughs> Mr. Steno? They can find me on Twitter. Um, I think that's, and probably on OnlyFans, I should say as well. <laughs> At least soon. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, if, if, the euro is not able to bounce after I threatened with, a, with an own defense page, then I don't think anything can save the euro. Let me put it like that. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. I want you to explain to me at which point I should consider buying bonds given what's ongoing in fixed income space. <laughs> what a question. Okay, so uh, we had a very clear example when the Bank of England says, I'm going to backstop bonds, I'm going to buy them, maybe you should buy them too. Okay, that's, uh, but that's a bit unpredictable, to be honest. And as you said, it depends on markets breaking first. So it's really, there is a very hard path getting there and predicting that it's basically impossible. Um, from a more longer term macro perspective, well, obviously the front end of the bond market, you can buy it when the month on month pace of inflation and core inflation slows down. Uh, so if you have a good visibility on that or good conviction on that, then we are at a point where forward real interest rates are pretty high. We are pricing terminal rates between, you know, in developed economies, anywhere between three and 6%, 5%, depending what you look at. So in nominal terms, it's relatively high. Uh, forward um, terminal rate uh, in nominal terms. And then inflation expectation have obviously a bit uh, retraced because markets expect that contingent to that very tight policy, you'll have some slowdown in demand and some slowdown in inflation. We are seeing evidence as well of some slowdown in real estate already. So, you know, two plus two. So if you have um, a view that inflation will effectively follow forwards, there is a point to be made, Andreas, that having positive real, re real yields to the tune of one, one and a half percent for a prolonged period of time should be more than enough to ensure a decent carry buffer. So what I'm saying in other, in other words is that a two-year treasury is at four and a half percent kind of price in that environment, unless you think inflation to really beat forwards and remain very sticky, it could be considered to be uh, a decent entry point from a terminal payoff perspective. You buy these two-year treasuries, four and a half, 
and the Fed ultimately is going to hike in a way that your carry is positive at the end of the, of the trade, right? Or even better, if inflation is slowing down, you can expect the market to kind of discount less tighter for longer in 2023, 2024, which also benefits your trade. But you need to have a very firm view on inflation to be able to if do that. If we look at the geopolitical situation in relation to this debate on long-term inflation expectations, I want your take on a thesis of mine, um, because what happened in the Baltic Sea the other day could be construed as a potential long-term geopolitical risk game changer. Uh, if the Russians were behind this, I have no clue at all. Um, I think my analysis would probably point in that direction, but I'm open to other perspectives. Um, then this is a potential long-term issue for European energy security, right? Yeah. What happened yeah. was that most commodities over the week actually dropped in price. And ultimately, you usually see inflation expectations, even in the very long end of the, of the curve, dropping alongside spot commodity price action, right? Yeah. Is the inflation curve at all a decent long-term indicator of sort of the outcome space of inflation in relation to this geopolitical debate? What do you make of that? I don't think that that is the case also because inflation expectations will tend to reflect a base model outcome of a distribution. I mean, they will be generally centered around the mean, which is driven by what people expect core inflation to be. So basically services inflation to be, Andreas, at the end of the day. And uh, when it comes to tails, because you're talking about tails, I don't think the inflation market is any more informed than you or I or anybody listening to this podcast about what Putin is going to do. Let's be honest about that. So um, I don't think that they, they can be a good predictor of that, especially of geopolitical implications. But you put out a thread on Twitter, which was very interesting, I found, looking at, well, first of all, I mean, if, if Russia was behind this, the signal they send is that they're not going to temporarily stop gas supplies to Europe. They just don't care about selling gas to Europe anymore, full stop. I mean, it's sabotaging the very, the very same Nord Stream pipelines they should be using in case we find an agreement, right, later on with Russia. So it seems to be a very strong signal. The other one is more interesting, that is, if they can reach those pipes, they could reach also some other pipes. Uh, behind, uh, below the, the ocean level. So, um, you know, okay, that can be a bit more complicated as a story. Uh, let's not get there because we don't have any proof that, that it was the Russians. But it goes to show that um, I want to, talking about the trade idea, I want to go into also discussing jurisdictions and effects this time. Um, what I want to do is uh, look at different indicators for different countries around the world. It's a similar analysis to what you have done, a slightly different angle. So basically, the, the, the way I see things, Andreas, is that the developed market economies over the last 20 years have relied on two very cheap forms of leverage. One is an economic leverage, the other one is a financial leverage. So the economic leverage would be getting very cheap input costs with on-time supply chains, right? So that would be cheap energy or cheap goods or cheap manufacturing goods, on-time supply chains. So always there, no inventories to be built, no risks, nothing. All right. So that basically allowed developed market economies to lever up and deliver non-inflationary growth. So the, the so-called Goldilocks environment that we were used to for, for decades, basically. The second leverage was financial leverage, because as long as it's non-inflationary growth, you can keep real rates relatively contained and you can make borrowing rates cheap for companies and households and mortgage rates become very low. And you know the whole story, right? Everybody levers up, credit creation, asset prices up, everybody feels rich. 
And actually, this model, Andreas, worked incredibly well, if you ask me, for 20 years. There is obviously a problem, which is exogenous shocks. Uh, this is a very complex and dynamic model, and if you put one exogenous shock, uh, then immediately it becomes very unstable. And we are now witnessing a couple of exogenous shocks all at once, starting from terms of trade in Europe to the dollar appreciation for other countries that that's more relevant, and so on and so forth. So now we're at a point where these systems become unstable, and FX vol is back, because as long as everybody's doing the same model, there is no exogenous shock, there is no FX vol as well, right? But now, different countries with different models, exogenous shocks, everybody can react in a different way. So then you have to look at a couple of indicators, I think, to map where countries are. And you need to look at well, the net international investment position as an idea of the financial account balance, basically. So is a country a net debtor or net creditor? You need to look at the balance of payment, let's say from a current account perspective. You need to look at the fiscal side of things. And then you need to look at that and the credibility of the policymakers. Now, I put all of that together. I look a little bit across the world, especially in developed markets, I have to be honest. What I look at is basically there, there, is, there, is, well, there is the dollar, and the dollar is the denominator of the problem at the end of the day. The problem are commodities, external liabilities, and the dollar is the denominator of both. So I'm going to put the dollar in a separate camp. It's just it's a wrecking ball. It's the, the denominator of the, of the thing that we are unlevering, Andreas. So, okay, I'm going to stop for a so second. Let me just have a guess. You want to buy the Danish krona. When, when you list, when you list <laughs> that, um, uh, both the net international investment position, Denmark is, is having a, I mean, a bizarre net international investment position. So I was about to get there. I was about to get there. So, so okay, so I see the dollar, and let's say the dollar is the long leg of any FX trade in an environment where you basically deleverage the cheap leverage inputs, and those are denominated in dollar. I mean, okay, you buy the denominator. That's very simple. Then I look around and I see, okay, who else is strong? Let's say I don't want to do a trade on the dollar. I want to be long something else. And then if I put everything together, there are basically two uh, places that look okay right now. One is Switzerland, and the other one is the Nordics, European Nordics, for different reasons, actually. So Switzerland's strength relies mostly in the gigantic amount of FX reserves they have. We are talking about 120% of GDP. So if they say, don't fuck with the Swiss franc, you can't fuck with the Swiss franc, literally. And then the other thing is that their policymaking is very orthodox, extremely orthodox, which in this case might actually be a benefit. Sometimes it's a negative, in this case might be a benefit. But the Nordics, the Nordics also have very sound balance of payments, very sound net creditor position, um, a strong fiscal policy, a decent amount of reserves, a good policy making, you call it, you name it. So then I was looking at that and I was thinking, okay, maybe it's good to have a look at as well at the Danish krona. And then I realized it's back to the euro. So basically what? Am I trading the euro? Yeah. Um, which is probably not what you should do right now. I, I, I mean, the only, the only issue um, in terms of buying the Danish krona is that you need some sort of political action to depeg yeah. the Danish krona from, from the euro. Quite um, visibly, the direction of travel right now would be in the direction of a very strong Danish krona. But the issue is that the day one hit to local pension funds being heavily allocated towards euro assets would be extreme, which is why it's probably That's not true. palatable um, for now. So, but we... We define the strongholds except the dollar, I think, in developed markets, they are Switzerland and some places in the Nordics. 
Then I look at the weak, the weak places. So what I'm looking at to target the short leg of an FX trade right now is jurisdictions that have inherent fragilities and they have um, very little room or credibility to defend the release valve of the FX. So how do you defend the release valve of the FX? Well, it, either you push real interest rates very, very high to a level where people are happy to fund your external weaknesses, basically, because your real return is decent, or otherwise you literally have foreign assets that you can dump on people and you can stop them out if they go short, which is what Japan is trying to do effectively, because they, they don't plan in raising real interest rates anytime soon, but they say, well, 145 is the line in the sand, we're going to stop you out every time you try and cross 145. Now, if I look at this conjecture, then I think the weakest links across the world right now are basically the euro and the sterling for different reasons. So the euro, because, well, again, if the, if the ECB wants to defend the bond market, then naturally they have a problem of credibility defending the euro as well at the same time and for the sterling but also from from the euro to a certain perspective the amount of fx reserves net fx reserves versus gdp or import is extremely small so even if they wanted to outright try and defend the fx market they can't they can't they can't so then when i look at all of that the vulnerabilities seem to be in the euro and the sterling the most so what's the trade so the trade would be to uh, buy some upside in Swiss franc against uh, the sterling. So CHF GBP would be one trade. I In my portfolio, I am already short euro dollar from 103. That's really working well. Uh, and short equities via the Russell 2000 also working well. But in effect, I don't want to pile up in another trade having the euro as the short leg. This is kind of proxy, a lower beta proxy of short euro dollar. It could also work because of idiosyncratic reasons in Switzerland and in, and in the UK. But if I look at the cost of upside, if I look at the three-month uh, digital option, for instance, I pay roughly 20% to own uh, an optionality of the Swiss franc breaching parity against um, the sterling roughly a two standard deviation monthly move but hey with this volatility two standard deviation is, is, is a pretty large move and i'm doing that on a three-month horizon so it's a bit less than that but still with this volatility andreas it seems to me that anything you're talking about carry or looking at historical volatility really doesn't matter it's more about the direction being right on the direction and spend it cost me 20 percent up from premium so i can get a 5x payoff if i'm right otherwise I take a bit less obviously if you're wrong, you're wrong. You can structure any trade such that the payout is very large and the upfront amount is very small. It's all about the probability yeah. of being right at the end of the day being higher than 20%. And I have the feeling because of the constellation we described, it should be or it could be. And the other one, Andreas, is the BTPs, mm -hmm. Italian government bonds. We discussed about that. I'm Italian. These bonds were yielding almost 5% yesterday, 10-year bonds. Uh, to be honest, the only reason why you should be you would be long Italy right now is the carry, the very 5% yield we talked about before, uh, because it can be a very, very large buffer. But again, it's a large buffer against what volatility and also what risks. Uh, it's, it's a bit complicated, to be honest, to foresee a situation where Italian bonds become palatable as a buy. Alfonso, um, I'll allow you to exit the macro trading floor with these remarks. And I think that um, we should uh, do an outro where we pick a bit on, on, on each other's trades. So let's do it. We're back 
for the outro, the macro trading floor, where Andreas, this time, instead of picking at somebody who can't listen to what we say, we're going to be picking at each other live in each other's faces. Love that. So um, let's recap the trades first, shall we? 20th of September, Mr. Steno Larsen is long the Mexican peso and short the euro against it. And uh, I myself am long the Swiss franc and short the sterling against it. Yeah. Let me say one thing about your trade, Alfonso. Um, first off, I have a bit of my excess cash parked in Swiss francs already, um, which essentially means that I at least indirectly agree with your assessment of the um, situation in FX space. But I also find it a bit typical of you to pick one with a very low carry relative to other potential um, ways of trying to shield yourself against this um, this situation in, in in mainland Europe and in, in the UK. Uh, but I mean, by the end of the day, it all depends on risk appetite, right? Uh, so this is, a, I'd, I say, I'd actually say that it's a slightly defensive version of my own trade um, to a certain extent. Um, yeah. It's maybe a low beta version yeah. of yours, but obviously there is some, there are some idiosyncrasies here. Eh? Let's not forget that some different decisions from the Mexican Central Bank or the Swiss Central Bank or uh, some ECB. Here it's really like every leg of the trade matters. So we used to think about effects in baskets, right? So there was emerging markets, whatever it meant. And then there was the, the dollar, what, you know, and we used to be baskets, but now it's really idiosyncratic. I mean, one way of implementing this relative FX game is uh, is via so-called currency sub deposits, um, and as we mentioned initially in the episode, uh, the episode sponsor is Saxo Bank, um, and you can find um, pretty decent um, yields on on these currency sub deposits. Um, and if you want to discover more about that, um, you can uh, find uh, more at go to dot saxo slash macro effects and we'll make sure to add that link to the uh, saxo platform in our description on youtube and in the various podcast apps that you're listening to but alfonso back to you i mean if you were to pick one argument against trying to shield yourself from the current mayhem in europe via a position in mexico what would that be i would say it would be probably commodities rolling over mm. further, it's difficult to think about it because you, you want to have terms of trade worsening for Mexico if you were to, sh or, or Latin America in general, if you'd have to short or, or be marginally defensive on these currencies. Because carry is, they're, they're very, they're very uh, advanced in their, in their tightening process. They're very credible in their tightening process, Brazil, Mexico, etc. So that part, relative to the Eurozone, especially as you chose the Euro as a short leg, it's very difficult to foresee a change there. I cannot foresee the ECB out-hawking the Bank of Brazil or the, or the Bank of Mexico on a marginal basis without having to you know, pull some plug somewhere to, to basically defend BTPs or, or basically water down their credibility anyway. So the only thing that can make the difference a lot is that in terms of trade, I mean, these countries are... Uh, neutral or net exporter of commodities. Europe is an importer of these. So if those prices would materially widely change, then I guess all of a sudden we would have 
a change in that equation. By the way, I have quite some sun behind me. Yeah, yeah. The, sun is going, the sun is going down behind you. I think that's a signal from God that we should end this podcast very soon. <laughs> but but I, I wanted to say one thing in relation to my Mexican trade. Um, I am also positioned, broadly speaking, for lower commodity prices. So I have that mixture. Um, so essentially, I'm looking for the yield in the Mexican piece here when I add these two positions together. Um, and I think commodities will head lower, but in a slightly orderly fashion, as we've seen recently. Um, and, and therefore, I think it's, it's, it's fair what you say, but I already have that sort of hedge embedded in my portfolio. So that's worth mentioning. Uh, I also want to say that the ETF that I've bought, S-A-L-L, uh, I had a question from someone on Twitter this week saying that I was paper training because I probably had to be the entire market in that S-A-L-L. And I think the entire market is around, I looked it up, it was around $12 million. Uh, and I mean, if <laughs> I don't know how, how rich you expect me to be out there, but that's, I mean, even if I put right about everything I owned, including my family's fortune, I don't think I can own the entire S-A-L-L portfolio. Sadly, no. Um, so I just wanted to address that as well. <laughs> well, before we leave, Andreas, let's remind people to check out the 20% discount code for um, uh, the Digital Asset Summit in London, October 17 and 18. I'm going to be there, most likely you as well. It's a uh, very institutional, macro and digital asset focused conference. So uh, use the discount code. It'll be in the, in the description of the podcast in case you want to check out the conference and be there. Meet us and meet other good speakers as well. I think that's it for today. This is Alfonso speaking and uh, see you guys at the next episode of the Macro Trading Floor. Bye.